Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. I do think that purchasing power itself, whether that's clothing or fashion, food or beauty products or household products, cleaning products, if you do just start an inner dialogue about the thing, where was this made? How Mm -hmm. did it get here? Where is it going to end up when I'm done with it? You're going to evolve and you're going to progress your thought process around it in a way that will ultimately benefit you and will benefit the planet. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living, through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Mom. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy, beautiful, sunny warm April Friday. I'm so excited to get outside in the yard. Can't wait. I'm excited to do my play tonight. Yes. How's that going? It's been so much fun. You know, it's a long process. We were delayed in January because we were supposed to go up in January, but then COVID. And so we really have been rehearsing for six months, which is a long time. And it doesn't feel real that we're actually doing the play now because it's felt a little bit like Groundhog Day, just like doing the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. But I'm just so proud of it and everyone in it. And it's a community theater in Northern Virginia. And I'm just so impressed by everyone involved, the production quality, the direction, the tech stuff, the sound. And there's a real bluegrass band playing with us. So that's so fun. Yeah, it's so much fun seeing you on stage again. It's been a while, as it has been for so many performing artists. Yeah, it has been a a long time. And guess what? Do you remember my company jacket? Yes, from your dance company in high school. Mm -hmm. Oh, This is kind of related to slow fashion. (laughs) I have not had the heart to get rid of it. That was a really big deal. It was there was a ceremonial presenting of the jacket, putting it on for the first time. And then before that, before you got into company, many years of looking at the other girls wearing their company jackets and one day I'll have my company jacket. And so it's embroidered and on the back is the the dance company and then it says company member on the front and then Emma. And I've never gotten rid of it, but I also haven't worn it in 15 years. <laughs> and it's literally just hung in my closet and I've been wearing it this week for tech week at the theater and it's perfect. I love it. <laughs> 
a wonderful example of a, a garment that has meaning and emotion and, and memories. And there are reasons to hang on to things. Totally. Yeah. And this is really funny. I'm definitely a little pack rat. I put things in my pocket and don't empty them. Oh, and no. What did you find? It's funny. It was a ticket stub from Twilight, the first Twilight that came out in 2008. <laughs> that makes it like a museum piece. <laughs> I know. And I actually remember going to see that movie for the first time. Okay. So moving on, tell us about what's going on on your side of the world. Are you planting anything? What are you doing on these beautiful days outside? Oh, yes. Planting a lot. Lots of my annual flower seeds and dye plants and planting some trees. We planted some oak trees that we got, putting in some apple trees that I actually grafted in a workshop. I've just learned grafting from Eliza Greenman. Our listeners might remember the episode we had with her a few weeks ago, and I actually went to one of her workshops to learn how to graft. And that was so exciting. And I got two apple trees out of it and put those in and they're actually budding. So yes, I feel like I learned this amazing new skill. Really quickly, what's grafting for someone listening who might not know what grafting is? Well, you take a, a root stock of a tree and through a process, you can actually take a cutting or a scion, they call it, from another tree and attach it so that the root stock will support the new tree. It's like jump starting a tree that you want. Like if you have a root stock of a of a very strong and disease resistant and resilient apple stock, but you want a certain variety of apple, you can graft it onto this root stock and instantly have a tree that's already well along and you don't have to wait years and years for it to come up from a seed. And it's just absolutely magical. That is like magic. It is. It's amazing. I can't wait to do it more. So I'm super excited about the two I've got going out there right now. Well, if you like this sort of thing and you love hearing stories about people working with the land and creative things that they're doing, you can start by listening to our interview from The Good Dirt with Lynn Cassells, who is one of the authors of the book, Our Wild Farming Life. We released her episode earlier this year. And we have the book in our online marketplace. And something really fun is that we're doing a reprise of our Good Dirt interview. We will be meeting with Lynn again on Zoom. She'll be joining us from Scotland on Sunday, May 15th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So this is like a little book talk, Q&A, just a chance to interact with Lynn and ask her any questions you have. We can chat about the book. I'm so excited to talk with her again. And this event will be $10, but it is free for Almanac members or if you pre-ordered or purchased a book from the Lady Farmer Marketplace. So we'll be emailing everyone who has ordered or, or had pre-ordered a book with a discount code, and you can find a link to purchase a ticket for this Wild Farming Life gathering on Sunday, May 15th in the show notes of this episode. You can also go to ladyfarmer.com slash wildfarminglife, and it will take you there as well. Yeah, and if you want to go back and catch that episode uh, with Lynn Cazelles of The Wild Farming Life, it's episode number 77, and it was aired back on February 4th. So we hope you'll go back and catch that episode and then join us again in May for our follow-up discussion with Lynn. Another announcement we have is that we have officially surpassed 100,000 downloads, which is super exciting. And as we inch closer to 100 episodes, which is also super cool, we just have a few fun things coming up for the Good Dirt Podcast and for our membership. And we're going to start by lowering the price for our basic membership. So this means you won't get access to everything in the premium membership, like uh, the weekly content and the monthly gatherings and the recipes and all the playlists that I make. So you won't have that. But for $5 a month, you can be in the Almanac network so you can engage and interact with other Good Dirt listeners. Um, we have a topic thread with all of the podcast episodes. So if you listen to an episode and you want to just keep talking about it more, you'll have access to those discussion threads. So that's the Good Dirt membership. 
And this is specifically like a Patreon or supportive subscription to the podcast so that we can keep production going. I don't know if there are other people like me. I assume there are. But when I hear a great podcast or read a good book or or see a great movie, I want to talk about it. I want to connect with people that have had the same experience. And I'm always, you know, me, I'm always saying, have you read this or have you read that? And I want to talk about it. So this is your chance not only to support us on the show to keep going, but also to keep these discussions going. And these are good discussions and they're important discussions and they're conversations that are leading to really great change and leading to more and more good dirt. So we really encourage you to join us and to help us spread it around. Yeah, definitely. So that Good Dirt membership is $5 a month. You can also do $50 for the whole year, which is even less than $5 a month. And don't worry, our premium membership is still there and we will be raising the price as we update the membership and make it a little bit more in-depth. The premium membership is designed for someone who really is excited about and committed to creating more slow living and sustainability in their life. We hold your hand through the process and we provide the structure and so many things for you to work with to to really help you along this journey. So that's coming. We haven't completely updated it yet. We're not going to raise the price yet. And if you're a current member, that'll be your price. Whatever you're paying is what you'll pay for the rest of your life. So um, <laughs> don't worry. You're locked in there. And thank you so much, everyone, for just being on this journey with us as we figure this out and figure out how to make it all sustainable for us and how to provide what you need in the best way that we can. We're just so honored to to be here. It's really been a fun journey. Yes. And it all started out six years ago now when you and I decided we were going to start a sustainable fashion brand. So that really leads right into our guest today, who is Shannon Lohr of Factory 45. And Emma, you want to tell everybody about what Shannon does? Shannon is someone who's been there with us almost since the very beginning. We didn't actually connect or meet her in person until a bit later, and then it was just so fun to reconnect for this interview. But Shannon has created the first and probably still, in my opinion, only real online incubator for fashion designers to launch a brand who want to do so sustainably. It's amazing the service that she provides and the wealth of knowledge that she brings. And she's walked this path before. She actually came to this through designing her own product and bringing it to market and crowdfunding it. And she learned, as we did in that process, so many things about the fashion industry and how it's very unsustainable. And so now she takes that and she teaches these entrepreneurs how to do this and make it sustainable in every way. She works with entrepreneurs to source fabric. She'll help you set up manufacturing and ultimately to raise the money to launch your brand. And we step-by-step did everything she told us to for our crowdfunding campaign. And for anyone who doesn't know that story, we reached our goal within the first few days. We surpassed it by a significant amount. And that's how Lady Farmer was born, was on Kickstarter through Shannon's system. So I'm just so happy to have Shannon on today. Yeah. So you and I can really relate to that gap between thinking, let's start a sustainable clothing brand to, but what do I do next? So yeah, we've been there and it's so much fun to talk to Shannon all these years later and catch up with her and see what she's been doing. We're just so proud of her and happy that she exists and that her company exists. And she plays such a significant role in helping expand this sustainable fashion movement by really helping these small brands get up and going. And she's really doing the work. And I really appreciated our conversation in so many ways. We talked about all of these issues we've been talking about the past several weeks with slow fashion, sustainable fashion, and just carrying that Fashion Revolution Week energy on. Yes. We want to keep the Fashion Revolution going. So here we are with Shannon Lohr. Enjoy. I'm Shannon Lore. I'm the founder of Factory 45, the online business school that takes sustainable fashion brands from idea to launch. 
I've been running Factory 45 since 2014. I've worked with over 500 entrepreneurs all across the globe. And I actually got my start in the sustainable fashion space when I launched my own brand back in 2010 and realized after doing that, it should be easier to start fashion brands that are sustainably and ethically made from the beginning. And so that's what led me to do what I do today. Yeah. And what's really amazing about talking to you today is that I guess way back in maybe 2015, maybe 2014, but probably 2015, I was actually living in Boston at the time. And I believe you were, did you live in Boston? Yeah. I don't think that really has much to do with the story because I found you online, but it was just like a coincidence that you were in Boston. And I like had this idea to start like, oh, I'm really interested in sustainable fashion and I don't see any sustainable fashion brands that I would wear or like buy myself. So I want to design some, but I like knew nothing about fashion design or anything. And I don't know if I found you or if it's someone recommended me to you, but you were like the first thing that I found about like, what do I do? I'm like, where do I start? So you have such a big role in the Lady Farmer story back yeah. in our early beginnings. Thank you. And then we did go through the crowdfunding factory. Do you still have that program? Mm-hmm. Yeah, We went through the crowdfunding factory and anyone who knows our story, it was extremely successful. It was such an awesome experience and we met our Kickstarter goals and we like were able to do the whole essential collection. So thank you, Shannon. It's so fun to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, I know it's so fun to reconnect too because it has been so long and you guys are probably one of my like first 50 clients. Yeah. Wow. To think about that too, how we supported each other from the beginning. And it's been so cool to see how your brand has evolved. Yay. Yes. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about, you said you casually glazed over, you started your own fashion brand in 2010. (laughs) Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that and maybe just kind of your journey to sustainable fashion and any light bulb moments around that? Yeah. So it was back in 2010. I had just gotten back from two years traveling, bartending my way around the world after college. And a girl that I had met while bartending in Australia, another American girl reached out to me through a Facebook message and said, I know you're not going to get a real job. Let's do something <laughs> together. That's funny. That's awesome. <laughs> like, like, like true, true cliche millennials. Right? <laughs> but we ended up really, this was in the time of like Tim Ferriss, four hour work week and like Chris Gillibo, the art of nonconformity. And people were really starting to like make money on the internet and like design their own lifestyles. And so we really said to each other, let's start a business so that we can continue traveling. Mm -hmm. And we went down to Central America. We started researching organic cotton. We started researching fair trade artisanal items that we could import back to the States. And then what we did that we actually ended up pursuing was designing a versatile travel garment that could be worn a bunch of different ways. You could just throw it in a backpack and be on your way for aspiring minimalists and female travelers like us. But in that process, we realized what a damaging industry the fashion industry is environmentally and to the people who make our clothes. And we decided that if we were going to do this, we were going to do it right with people and planet considered first. So we ended up going back to the States and we set up a supply chain within a 50 mile radius, which that sort of localization and commitment to sustainability and ethical manufacturing was really kind of unheard of at that time. You, yeah. you didn't even really hear the words sustainable and fashion put together and no one really knew what that meant. So it was kind of like we were paving our own way And really, you know, from the beginning, creating a business that we could feel good about that was an inherently good business model. And so we ended up launching the highest funded fashion project in Kickstarter history at that time. We were featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. It was just this amazing first sort of whirlwind experience when it came to entrepreneurship. And we went on a uh, sustainable fashion tour of the Pacific Northwest. We quadrupled our first production order. And it was, yeah, it was just a very, very cool first experience in entrepreneurship. 
So was it just from traveling and kind of doing the sourcing for kind of before you figured out what you wanted? How did you come to the terms that sourcing from within a 50 mile radius, what would be better for the, and also what was your motivation? Was it the planet? Was it the people? Was it kind of all of it? Like what was your kind of why as to why you wanted to do something sustainable fashion, especially when it was so people just had no idea, like you said. Yeah, you're such pioneers. Yeah. Like, how did you even uh, come up with a, oh, we'll have a local supply chain. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I think it was two parts. I think there was an element of it that it just came together that way. But I think that my generation or just like the people that we were, we, it was like a no-brainer, sort of. If we were going to start a business, we were going to make sure that it had social impact, that it was not damaging to the environment, you know, and that is such a nuanced, big conversation to have, but that we just really had this commitment to an inherently good business model, knowing that that was going to evolve. It was probably going to change. We weren't going to do it perfectly, but that starting small and starting local, and especially when you look at the Carolina textile belts, you know, that's where all of our clothing was made back in the day. It was just like, that was the place. So contributing to sort of that revival and telling the story of the sewers and the craftsmen and the people who have those skills that are so often overlooked now with traditional fashion and fast fashion, it was all of those things. So when you went back to the States, where did you go? Did you go to the Carolinas? Yeah, we did. Okay. So we ended up in Morganton, North Carolina yeah. was where our sew shop was. And then down the road was our fabric supplier. And then down the road from there was our organic cotton drawstring supplier. So it was all very, very intertwined. They all knew each other, and it was just a really, really cool way to see how the supply chain could come together without having to fly materials back and forth all over the world and really work with the people where there's a direct impact on the local economy. And how did you know or how did you come up with the idea of Kickstarter crowdfunding? So it's funny. It was kind of foreshadowing. We started a blog very early on to sort of document our journey, to build an audience before we had anything to sell. And one of our first blog posts, I remember a friend who was also kind of dabbling in entrepreneurship had sent me a link to Kickstarter and was like, look at this. This is kind of cool. Like you can get other people to help fund your business idea. And so we wrote a blog post about Kickstarter, just, you know, like this is an option and Mm. maybe we'll do it someday. And then, you know, fast forward a year later, we were launching our own. Oh, cool. Makes sense. If you're like, don't have a ton of capital and starting out with like a cool project, do you think? And you guys know that too, just yeah. from doing it. Like it makes sense, not just from the element of we don't have a lot of capital or the financial backing, but just also like testing the market mm-hmm. and making sure there is a need and that people want what you're creating. I think all of those things, pre-selling angle is something that I still teach today. And I think is one of the best ways for new brands to launch. Yeah. And for us in particular too, it was the education about, well, first of all, that you don't just slap up a crowdfunding campaign and expect people to (laughs) open their wallets, but that it's a really long build up. And for us, I think it was the best lesson in marketing and really like getting clear on our brand and who we were and just having that sort of runway. And if anything, and I think you say this in the course, it's almost more of a marketing campaign than it is a fundraising campaign. Yes. And that was the biggest lesson. Like I didn't realize till we were on the other side of it, like, oh, that's, I think we got more, even though we were able to fund our project, the biggest takeaway was the expansive audience and, you know, just the work and like building the list and all of that stuff. It set up our brand in fundamental ways that I don't think without the Kickstarter, we would have those things. So yeah, yes. aren't related to fundraising, just like everything else. Yeah, I think, you know, if nothing else, it started our email list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I mean, we basic had a, stuff. Yeah, like yeah. We were out the door with a nice big list of people that were supporting us already. I'm just so impressed how you were breaking such new ground in the area of sustainable fashion. Like you just knew what needed to be done. And I know that when we were going after it in 2016, 17, people really didn't understand 
what we were talking about. So I can't imagine. Yeah. In, in 2010, <laughs> do, were you telling people like, what was your elevator speech? Yeah. People always ask us what our elevator speech was. So I'm asking oh, you that yeah. now. <laughs> so when, you know, people, we're doing this brand that, how did you explain it? So this brings me to a good point, which is I tell my entrepreneurs in Factory 45, you can never use sustainability as your primary marketing tactic, right? Mm-hmm. Like sustainability when it comes to fashion, it can't be the first thing you focus on. So I don't think we focused on it really. I think Mm. we talked about how it was a versatile travel garment. It would make packing easier. It was one piece that could be worn 30 different ways, like those elements of how it benefited the customer. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, Oh, and side note bonus, like it's sustainably made in the USA of recycled materials and organic materials and ethically manufactured. And it was kind of like that was just built in, you know, it was just Mm, part of the business model because that's what is the right thing to do. Oh my gosh. So you kind of backed into it like that. That's so interesting. So yeah. Yeah. So then would that lead people to ask questions like, oh, well, so why do we want things that are made in the United States? Why do we want organic fabrics? Doesn't that cost us more? I mean, why would you do that? I mean, did it lead to opening up to more questions? I guess how much educating did you have to do around sustainable fashion? Yeah. A lot. A lot. (laughs) And I (laughs) I think that's like what led us to do the sustainable fashion tour in the summer of, I guess that was the summer of 2011 or 2012. And we literally like decked out this van with our logo and photos. We painted it. It was like this very cool 1993 Chevy conversion van that we were driving from Vancouver, Canada down to San Francisco. And we were stopping along the way and hosting pop-ups. And we brought a documentary film intern with us to film videos. And like that piece of the education part of it was like, oh, of course, this is the next step because Mm -hmm. we're trying to educate people on a mass scale. And well, let's do that in a way that is fun and compelling and engaging because sustainability, let's face it, is not the sexiest of topics. Like it's not something that everyone just wants to sit around and talk about over coffee, especially Mm -hmm. in 2011, 2012. So that was one way for us to really engage our audience, grow our audience and do a little good at the same time. Especially in terms of fashion. Because I remember yes. even in 2015 and 16, you know, when Emma expressed to me as we were evolving our own idea about what to do, she said, I want to buy clothing that's ethical and sustainable, but I can't find anything I even like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, sustainable and fashion like really weren't even paired at that point. It was <laughs> in terms nope. of concept. <laughs> yeah. It was like I said, it was an oxymoron. Yeah. It was yeah. Like you would never use those two words together. Right. Oh my gosh. So you did this van trip. Again, ahead of your time. Yeah. Van life. <laughs> Hashtag just, van life. No kidding. You're like consistently like eight years ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that frustrating? <laughs> you feel that way sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Like catch up everyone. Yeah. I were like, come on, how many times do we have to say it? And then this was before Rana Plaza even. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Which was, a, I, I feel like, a huge cultural awakening, which made it a lot easier for us to talk about stuff for sure. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Talk yeah. about, you didn't even have that. <laughs> well, talk about Rana yeah. Plaza because some people listening might be going, what's that? Yeah. So, Rana Plaza was the garment factory collapse in Bangladesh. That was that in 2013. 13, I think. Yeah. Yeah. 2013, um, which sparked Fashion Revolution Day, Fashion Revolution Week, more media coverage around the whole issue. I remember when that like shortly after that happened I wrote a article for the Huffington Post that was like five truths about the fashion industry that you didn't know or something like that and it kind of went viral in the sense that it was shared a lot a lot of traffic a lot of views but with that always comes like a lot of comments and you should Mm -hmm. never read the comments (laughs) but just that really shined a light on like how much or how little people knew like how little we knew about how our clothes are made, the people who make them, and starting to question, like, why can you buy a t-shirt for 
less than $5. Yeah, right. So tell us a little bit about Factory 45 and kind of the beginnings of that. And then, yeah, yeah how has that evolved over these years? Yes. So basically, I ended up short story selling my portion of Revolution Apparel, my sustainable fashion brand, to my then co-founder. And knowing that it was an amazing first experience in entrepreneurship, but I wanted to do other things. And I really saw this need. It was like, all right, people should be able to do this from the beginning in a way that's sustainably and ethically made. How can I open those doors for other people? So I started consulting just on a per project basis. And what I realized was I really wanted to work with the people who didn't have any money. It was like the startups who were bootstrapping. They didn't have a lot of money to invest. But I knew that if I could get them to a certain point, they didn't need twenty dollars to $30,000 to invest in a production run because I could teach them how to pre-sell. I could teach them how to crowdfund. And that is what led me to launch Factory 45, which is my online business school for sustainable fashion brands. And I've worked with over 500 entrepreneurs over the past, oh, how many years is that? Seven, eight years to educate them and to help them get off the ground in a way that is financially viable and helps them bootstrap and then launch successful pre-sale campaigns to test the market and raise money. So awesome. It's such a needed yeah. service. And I'm sure that many people listening, it's kind of one of those things that's, it's so, it makes so much sense. And yet without kind of the convoluted issues, we wouldn't think that that's something that we need, but it's like, we really, really need this. Like creative people who have these ideas for solutions need to be given the tools to be able to enact those ideas. And up until really recently, that was kind of something that you kind of couldn't do if you didn't have a ton of capital or yeah. a lot of the knowledge I found and even still is inaccessible. Just like, how do you do this? You know, unless you go to fashion school and then when you go to fashion school, they teach you very certain specific ways to do things. So there's people that literally graduate fashion school and they're like, I don't know how to do sustainable development or anything. So Or start a business even. Yeah. That is something that I run into all the time where I have people apply to Factory 45. They say, I just graduated from FIT. I just graduated from FITM. I know how to draft a pattern, but mm -hmm. I don't know how to start a business. And what I ultimately want to do is have my own brand. That's bonkers. And so that's sort of, <laughs> yeah, that's and that's sort of where I connect those two dots is, Okay, you have the fashion background from a design standpoint, but here's the business knowledge education that you need to actually create your own brand and do it in a way that, you know, is going to be a viable business. And do you have like a standard they have to meet in terms of sustainability and ethical manufacturing? What are your requirements? Yeah, good question. So it is an application process mm -hmm. and one of the questions is about what is your commitment to sustainability? I will say that if someone doesn't know, the great thing about Factory 45 is that we're starting with people from idea stage. So if you don't know, then we can teach you. And that's what we do. From the beginning, we talk about all the different elements of what makes a fashion brand sustainable, where you can incorporate sustainability along the way as you grow. And so while yes, we want that to be a main intention of the brand, you don't have to know all the things mm. and be able to say right from the beginning, what makes your brand sustainable, because we'll help you do that. So you actually get to help shape it and help shape people's yes. concepts. And while you're doing that, you're educating them and helping them to understand the issues because these are people that are just starting out and then they might not know all the issues. I know we certainly did not. Yes, you know, exactly. We went into exactly. it so naively, but, you know, you learn one thing at a time. One of the first things we learned is that, no, you can't get organic linen that was grown in the United States because guess what? It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we were like, what? <laughs> yeah, and I think that's one of the things that is important when it, it almost can make it harder sometimes when I have entrepreneurs come in who are so committed to one thing or one type of fabric or one element of sustainability, yeah. but it may not make the most sense for their product. And so being able to sort of educate them on other options and sort of support them in the evolution, like I think that's so important as an entrepreneur to be able to pivot, to evolve, to not be so married to your idea that you can't see the better option along the way. Yeah, we did our original line, our essential collection line, and we you mm -hmm. know went through the whole process, you know, 
you know, the Kickstarter and the manufacturing and the just everything that went into it. And um, then we realized, you know, that we really wanted to pivot into more community building and education around the ideas. Kind of like you did in a way. Yeah. 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 But it's so valuable for us to have gone through that because we get it. You know, we can speak to every point in the process because we did it and we were there and we started out, we knew nothing and all of that. But this is not to say we won't get back to it. You know, sometime I still have ideas about things I want to do and things we want to do and design and and get back out there. But there's just so many. There's so many things to do in this. Also, something that's really fun and exciting about this space, probably thanks to you, Shannon, in many ways, is there's so many awesome brands out there now that just, like, weren't and, like, that did not exist when we were starting. And, you know, one of our main reasons for doing what we did is, like, we can't find what we... And now I'm like, there's so many amazing brands that I could fill my closet with if I wanted to. So... Part of, I think, what really excites us is, like, lifting up other people that are doing it. And, yeah. like, in many ways, there's no, you know, we, we don't need to, like, reinvent the wheel and sort of, like, add to the right. noise. and no, Not that yeah. that's noise, but add to what it's already it's like being done. It's, like, the options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, one thing you learn yeah. when you're working with sustainable fashion is you learn that we really don't need to make any new clothes at all. Nobody yeah. does. <laughs> you know, there's already enough clothes on the planet. You know, that's one way to look at it. But of course, you know, people are always going to want to create things and other people are going to want to buy new things. So there certainly is a place for it. But it's not like it's, we don't need more clothes on the planet, actually, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. So what progress have you seen in the evolution of these sustainable fashion brands, like in general? Well, definitely more, definitely more options, as we were saying. And I think that, you know, I often get asked this question of like, do we need more sustainable fashion brands? Mm-hmm. And while the obvious answer is like, no, we have enough clothing, if it wasn't for more brands launching in the sustainable fashion space, there wouldn't be the conversation that is Mm -hmm. happening about sustainability in fashion, because it's the brands that are doing that education. They're the Mm -hmm. ones talking about it on social media. They're the ones talking about why it's so important. They're the ones educating their customers. And so I do think that it's kind of this line of like, okay, maybe we don't need more sustainable fashion brands, but we need the options. Like we need, Mm -hmm. what's the alternative really? Because the alternative is ordering more stuff on Amazon, going into H&M and Forever 21 and buying those $5 t-shirts. And so I think that it is this balance of making sure that we are having these conversations and this education and, and and in doing that supporting the small brands who you know ultimately that's their champion cause and i think it's so important to drive up the demand for organic cotton yes or whatever sustainable yeah, material whatever yeah. material yeah. but like if people aren't buying organic cotton underwear then no one's going to make organic cotton, you know? So it's like, yeah. um, and the big brands, bless them, some are trying to do it right, but they're so entrenched and so big and it's really, really hard to make those supply chain shifts when you're like a huge company. Even Patagonia, who is, you know, they do almost everything right and they're like, you know, they're kind of such a beacon of light in the like sustainable fashion world, but they still have many things that aren't completely made sustainably and their materials can be kind of questionable depending, but they're, you know, they're big about like transparency, which is amazing and they're like very open about that. But just imagine if they're being open about that, then anyone who's not being open. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And I think it has to come from all the different levels, like whether and like even getting, you know, now government is involved in some ways. In California, there was just a bill passed that the brand can be held liable if the labor is not up to par where they're manufacturing the factory that they're working with. So like all of those, whether it's big brands, small brands, government, whatever it is, like it's going to take a multi-prong approach Mm -hmm. to really see a shift. Totally. What are some brands that you've launched that you, not to like make you pick favorites, but maybe that you're like most proud of or most... Examples. Yeah, or like something that maybe people might know that have gotten kind of into the mainstream. I know you've launched a few that are like pretty major yeah, what are some of those brands yeah. that people might know? Probably the biggest one is Veta, V-E-T-T-A. They 
launched in 2016, I believe, came through Factory 45 in 2015. And just in terms of like press and exposure and growth, Kara is the founder. She's doing amazing. They started with, and they still do, capsule wardrobes that make up 30 days worth of outfits. And that's just the photography, branding, everything is just beautiful. So that would be one that people would know. The brands that are really championing size inclusivity and expanded sizes. One is Sotella. Another one is Poppy Row. Just in terms of messaging and again, education around offering a wider range of sizes for all types and body shapes of women is also so important. Lottie is another one, L-O-T-I, that is focused on upcycling. So taking a fabric that already exists, like men's button-up shirts and different fabric remnants and making them into really like just beautiful, beautiful garments. So those would be a few that I would highlight. As these sustainable fashion brands come along and they launch, what are their goals mainly, do you find? Or is it all over the place? Is it more like organically grown fabrics to protect the soil? Or is it more social justice issues? Or is it a whole combination? What do you see being the main emphasis of things? What's what's trending within sustainable fashion, I guess is maybe one way to put it. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it really depends on the brand. Mm -hmm. It also depends on the product. I always say you cannot sacrifice fit, functionality, draping, durability of the garment for the sake of a more sustainable fabric. They Mm -hmm. have to kind of coincide because if you have the most sustainable garment in the world and no one can wear it and it's in the back of the closet, it's not sustainable. So I would say definitely at the forefront is the ethical manufacturing side, which isn't exactly sustainability, but it falls sort of under the same umbrella. Mm -hmm. People are first and foremost, very committed to working with factories that pay their workers above minimum wage, obviously a fair and living wage, treat them well. We're seeing more cooperatives popping up in the United States specifically where It's worker-owned, so the sewers get profit share. I think that's an amazing business model that is trending up. And then in terms of sustainability, I think a lot of lean towards natural fibers. We're seeing more and more with the recycled polyesters and recycled nylons that they're great in terms of potentially taking plastic out of the landfill. You know, there's some debate around that, but we're also seeing microplastics being shed into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so people are starting to, and brands are starting to kind of sway away from that. Of course, with swimwear, that's necessary. You can't make swimwear out of organic cotton. But yeah, I would say those are a few of them, a few of the trends. And what kind of related maybe to that question, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see brands going through when they're, what are some of the biggest sticky points? Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, sourcing at small minimums, because Mm -hmm. again, when you're just starting out, you're not going to necessarily do a production run of tens of thousands of units without first testing and knowing that you have a customer base, all those things. So being able to source sustainable fabrics in small batches, which is something we emphasize in the Factory 45 program, we have a whole database of fabric suppliers that are focused on sustainable fabrics at low minimums. So that's one thing. And then just capital, it's always money, you know, having the money, whether that's to market the brand or to invest in product development or, you know, all the little pre-launch pieces that go into it before you even launch the brand itself. Yeah, I would say all of the maybe us going through at least the crowdfunding portion of your course was, I mean, I can't remember like the one thing that was most challenging, but it was like, not what I thought it would be. It was more the audience growth. And yeah, sourcing is a big one. I think our biggest challenge was people not understanding why the pricing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People were like, why is your dress $200? And then that's how we got into the whole education piece of it. We just kept 
well, let us tell you why. And even then, like $200 for what we were, the cost of it is like, yeah. we still weren't making enough. <laughs> that part of it probably is also probably super challenging, like pricing your things. Because yeah. we went through a regular, at one point we talked to another kind of fashion consultant and we did like whatever the formula is for pricing yeah. You know, like a regular market thing. And it's like four times the production cost or whatever. And you're like, mm-hmm. what? And I guess if you're buying really cheap stuff, that's possible. But no way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did that formula with napkins. We were trying to price out some napkins. And it was like, this napkin should cost $5. <laughs> We're like, oh. and well, and I think that's why we do see more of the smaller brands or the startup brands just starting with direct to consumer because yeah. then it can yeah. be two x or two point five x. But yeah, when you're talking about trying to sell to stores or wholesale or marketplaces yeah it gets expensive quickly also something I just want to shout out about direct to consumer seems enticing but there's this whole other side of it and I feel like especially as the internet gets smarter and as you know these platforms like Facebook and Instagram that we're used to using as kind of like quote-unquote free marketing get harder to use and cost more the direct-to-consumer, whatever price that you're saving in the pricing, you have to build in. The marketing is insane. I feel selling our stuff direct-to-consumer, the amount of just back-end technology, marketing, like, know-how that we've had to know that has, like, I think I spend most of my time on that than I do, like, actually the work that people see, you know, maybe people think we sit around writing blog posts all day. I don't know what they think we do (laughs) or taking pretty pictures, but no, it's all just so people can even see it. Yeah. It's figuring out online traffic. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why I say, you know, when people come into factory 45, I'm like, you are going to get such an education beyond just starting a clothing line like that's Mm -hmm. like not even there's so many other things that you're going to learn and have these skills of setting up a email marketing platform and connecting it to a landing page that you've built and then figuring out how to get that out to your subscribers like even that stuff there's such valuable skills to have in today's work landscape it can yeah. be translated to so many other things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the last couple of years, and there's been so much more awareness about, you know, systemic social inequality and injustice and so forth. Do you think consumers are now beginning to make more of a connection between these deep, deep issues and their own consumer habits. I mean, I think, I guess what I'm getting at here is people like to point at these things and talk about how the system is flawed and really maybe not reflecting all the way on how their very own behaviors and everything they use and buy and all the commerce they interact with every day is so deeply embedded in this. And do you see that coming forth in the people you're helping? Definitely the entrepreneurs that come through Factory 45, I would say the vast majority, like they are already thinking very consciously about their purchasing power just as consumers for sure. On the flip side of that, in terms of like the customer itself, just like, let's say the general population, Mm -hmm. there was this like messaging going around about how if you are basically if you're shopping at you know forever 21 in the fast fashion stores you can't call yourself a feminist because Mm -hmm. there are literally women there are 27 million slaves in the world many of them are the ones making our clothing and many of them are women Mm -hmm. so I'm not necessarily one to like go towards the like shame and fear side of things when it comes to this education But I just think that was sort of like a halt, like just like deer in the headlights a little bit like, oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's one way to think about it. But to say that the general population is thinking about it in that way, I think is probably naive. I don't think we're there yet because, you know, if we were, then Amazon wouldn't be valued and, you know, making the amount of money they are Mm -hmm. as well as the fast fashion brands. I agree. I think it's also something that I've noticed from the conversation is I think people get it, but at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. people poor and they feel like they don't have the money to invest because the problem right now with solving this problem is you know buy better buy ethical buy higher quality stuff and that's 
can be really inaccessible if you don't have the dispensable income. Obviously, there's a million ways to make more sustainable choices without spending money. I've observed this general malaise around it. You know, even people in my circle that I know buying stuff off Shein and I'm like, you're friends with me. How are you buying things from Shein? Mm -hmm. I get it also when you feel like you don't have any money and you want a cute thing. Yeah, I think that's why it's important also that there's, you know, with any movement or like shift in societal behavior, it starts with a very small group of people. And for ethical and sustainable fashion, it happens to be a small group of people who can afford the price point. Yes, And so if that sort of group of people can then bring down the price, Mm -hmm. you know, the more we can like have access to it, the more organic cotton that's grown or Mm -hmm. not even that organic cotton's the answer, but that we can make it more accessible over time. But I do think it just, it starts with like that small group of people who can afford it, who do value it. But I completely agree. Like it's just in many, many cases, not accessible to the average person. I'm thinking about gluten-free stuff. Remember when gluten-free yeah, stuff was- Or like organic was, food. Yeah. It was yeah. like really yeah. kind of obscure, hard to find, super expensive. Yeah. Yep. That's so true. Like the more mainstream something comes, the more accessible to everyone. But in the meantime, I think it's important to call it what it is and say, you know, there's a lot of issues here and it's not that simple. But it is a fact that, you know, these very cheap brands, all this very inexpensive apparel involves modern day slavery. And people just need Mm -hmm. to know that. And it needs to sink in instead of being something that people are kind of afraid to say because it's too icky and it makes people really, really uncomfortable. It also makes them defensive, as we've just been Mm -hmm. saying. But Mm -hmm. however, you are personally going to react to that as a consumer I think it's important that you know or that it's put in front of us yeah yeah and I think of that even with plastic like you know every time you buy a new piece of plastic crap like whatever it is like yeah that has to go somewhere it's probably not going to be recycled it's probably going to take 200 years to decompose in the landfill but to start to Think about that. exactly. Even if you don't change your behavior, Mm -hmm. just start to maybe think about it as you make a purchase. Because I know like for me, I went from probably in 2010, like, oh, well, if I don't want this, I can just give it to Goodwill and, you know, they'll resell it. And then you learn like, oh, that's not actually what happens. And then it evolves to like, okay, do I really need this? Am I really going to use it? Uh, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to buy it anyway. But at least I was thinking about it. And then that evolves to like now, like I needed whiteout the other day, just a tiny bit of whiteout. And they only had a pack of four bottles of whiteout and I didn't (laughs) buy it because I only needed like a tiny bit of it. So I think it's just kind of like that thought process can evolve for everyone and get and progress. Yes, absolutely. And it begins with just facing the truth of these things. Yeah. Yes. So- Given all of this, do you and knowing what you know about everything that you know the the entire system, the fashion industrial complex, <laughs> if you will, mm-hmm. and then also mm-hmm. knowing a lot about individual consumer choices, do you think that this is something like the changes are something that can come from the consumer? Do you think that there is a certain amount of internal systemic change from the top down? Like how do you see? any change really happening it's kind of a chicken and egg situation yeah because the consumer has to demand it for there to be any like top down action right like that's with anything if the consumer voices and votes with their dollars again as cliche as that phrase has become it is so true and that's why you see the H&Ms of the world like at least trying to incorporate more organic cotton or Nike using more organic cotton and not even talking about it but just doing it because it's part of their business model now Mm -hmm. I think it's very very complicated and there is no question that more could be done from the top But I think you see that with like anything that we are going through in this world, right? It's like we all want the top to be doing more and to be doing better. But maybe ultimately it is up to us. I know it's so frustrating because like I really, not to bring up Sheen again, but I really felt like we were making progress. And I'm just like baffled that a company like that is like so huge. It's like surpassed H&M. Uniqlo. Yeah. Yeah. 
Didn't yeah. Shion just hire a sustainability? They I mean, probably did, but that's just more of the like it doesn't. That's not doing anything. Right, just doing things to make it sound like they are for PR. Yeah, yeah, right. That's what I saw about it. Was like, really? Are they really? <laughs> I actually read an article in a trade journal like yesterday. I think really interesting about some sort of policy for trade. There's some loophole with import taxes on U.S. stuff that is supposed to protect U.S. kind of internal trade by taxing external imports and whatever. There's a loophole that huge companies, they're sending tons of smaller shipments to like get around that thing so they don't have to pay as much duty tax or whatever. But basically, (laughs) if this law comes into place, it will really affect those companies. And this article was saying that it would like basically shut Xi'an down. It would, you know, change their business model enough they weren't able to go around this law. All that to say, as you said, Shannon, it's very complex, very nuanced. And there's so many things that go into this. And it makes me think it's a combination, yeah, of policy. And I think the trade stuff is super interesting, too. This is just like a global commerce scale Mm -hmm. thing a lot of us are so removed from and don't know anything about and it's just I don't know just like be informed I guess is the only thing you could do yeah and I think also you know like you pick your things to care about I get that right we can't all care about all the things Mm -hmm. otherwise we'll just curl up into a ball and never again never get out but I do think that purchasing power itself whether that's clothing or fashion food or beauty products or household products cleaning products if you do just start an inner dialogue about the thing where was this made how Mm -hmm. did it get here Where is it going to end up when I'm done with it? I just think that is like a very small first step you can make that will internally shift. You're going to evolve and you're going to progress your thought process around it in a way that will ultimately benefit you and will benefit the planet. Yeah. It's just, it's really boils down to awareness. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's so much of everything. And, you know, we've gotten so far away from awareness and we've gotten so blindsided by marketing and the ways of capitalism and the ways that capitalism shape our behavior. Not saying capitalism is the big bad evil. I'm just saying we have to learn how to live with it. I mean, I don't think it's going Mm -hmm. anywhere. Right. And as consumers, to your point, we do have the power to shape it. But again, we have to know the truth about what's going on before we can really decide where we're going to double down. And we also can't point fingers at each other either and like there's Mm -hmm. this thing that we can't shame each other into I love that example of that what was that thing that you said earlier about forever 21 okay sometimes it's helpful to bring up ideas like that but at the end of the day the finger pointing makes everyone really defensive and well angry and what's like this you know If everybody pays attention to what they're buying and why and makes those priorities, their purchasing priorities, then all the places will have to change. Yeah, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Shannon, what does slow living mean to you? And how are you able to embrace that concept into your life these days? Good question. Well, I think the first thing that actually comes to mind is... I set a reminder in my phone to pop up at like, I think it's at 8 a.m. every single day. And it just says, enjoy life. That's all it says. And every day I get this reminder. And granted, it's on my phone, so we're not perfect here. But but it is just like that reminder to pause and just remember to enjoy life, to slow down. I think that now being a mother, I have a four-year-old and just remembering that it goes quickly and whether that is slowing down to put my phone away and to be fully present in the moment or to really if I'm cooking to really think about the ingredients and what I'm doing and and the next step in the recipe or whatever it is or if it's being on Poshmark and okay that's a thrifted piece of clothing like it's not you know, it's secondhand, but do I really need it? Taking that moment before purchasing it. Same with the whiteout. Like Mm -hmm. I can afford these four bottles of whiteout, but I don't need them. So pausing, slowing down. um, I think that's what slow living is for me as being conscious about the decisions you make and how they impact everyone else. 
Yes. Oh my gosh. hundred percent. Yes. Poster child for lady farmer. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's so helpful because a lot of times and probably in our own, in our own imagery, you know, we're a lady farmer. We're like slow living farm nature and all those things are part of our brand. But really how we got there is exactly everything we've had this conversation about. And that reason is because when you do slow down and you can be more conscious about your choices. Yes. So, thank and you for saying we that. We say that in the very first paragraph of our book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's about oh, making yeah. conscious choices. <laughs> yeah, so, so you get an A, Sheena. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> thank you. It's, it's only taken 10 years of being in the sustainability space, but I got an A. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what does the good dirt mean to you? I think the good dirt for me is thinking about food. I am so, so conscious of my food purchases, like almost maybe more than even fashion, like, or they're on the same wavelength, Mm -hmm. especially my husband is very into food sustainability and thinking about where your food comes from and how it's grown and how to support local farmers and organic food and all the things. So that's probably what I think of with the good dirt is eating good food. And you guys are in California now, so you're so surrounded by it, huh? Yes, we have the most amazing farmer's market every Wednesday. It's just like such a treat. You know, something that we only learned recently, I mean, it's been a minute now, but is that actually here on the East Coast, we get most of our food from California. Like 95% of what we eat on the East Coast is like shipped in. I don't want to say that percentage because I've never been able to verify it, but I heard that in a local lecture and the the presenter, I've never been able to track down like where he got that, but he said 95% of our food in the Washington DC area comes from California, which is craziness. And really scary to think about like a fuel shortage. That makes us (laughs) a food desert basically. Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting. I honestly thought it would have come from even farther like Mexico South America so yeah. Yeah. at least it's domestic but yeah. yeah a lot of it crazy. does yeah but yeah. I'm so glad you draw that parallel between the food and clothing because it's so true it's, it's all the same thing the things we need every day in our life in our food clothes the things in our environment our shelter our homes the tools we use in our daily life in recent decades we have been separated from those things by industry all of those things mm-hmm. And so the more we can not remove the industry from in between, because that's not practical in today's world, but at least understand about it and understand the sourcing of things and what happens to it before it gets to us and before we use it can help us make these better decisions that are going to drive whatever's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And the other thing with food is there are just as many issues as in the fashion industry with the unethical labor practices and environmental harm and destruction that is caused by the food industry. So they're so parallel. And all the injustices and inequalities and all that stuff goes on in the food industry just the same. Yeah. Yeah. So in closing, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or mention? Or I like to ask our guests is what is the thing that they want the listeners to most understand about the work that they do? I think the thing I want people to most understand about the work I do is that there is no such thing as perfectly sustainable. When we talk about sustainable fashion, anytime you're making something new, it has an impact. But the more that we can start to think about what the impact is, how we can reduce the impact, how we can use our own purchasing power, I think that will get both consumers and brands to a better place in their sustainability journey and ultimately be, have a positive impact on planet and people. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. That's a good point. There's no, can't check all the boxes. No, there's no perfect. Yeah. We're just doing the best we can. Yeah. <laughs> I think somebody that was on here said the biggest enemy of sustainability is that idea of perfection that mm-hmm. people think, well, they can't really do it all the way. I just won't do it at all. Right. Right. That's not where we want people to be. We want to do what they can. Yeah. That's right. We all have our small part. Yes. So, so how can people find you and maybe tell a little bit, is the structure of factor 45 still the same and can they do the crowdfunding part separately still? I mean, it's been so many years, but maybe to the person who's listening, who's interested to give a little pitch maybe. So I think if you are already sort of established and you have your sourcing and your manufacturing and you're farther along in the process, the crowdfunding 
Factory is a great course to take if you want to learn how to pre-sell and to launch with a pre-selling method, whether that's through crowdfunding or on your own e-commerce store. If you're starting from idea stage, Factory 45 is our flagship program that is our online business school. We really take you from idea to launching your sustainable fashion brand. We have alumni mentors who have graduated through Factory 45 and are now running their own brands. They're matched up with you for one-on-one support. We have two live calls a week. And then I teach a masterclass every month. And then we have the whole online portal where you're really walked through step-by-step. This is what you do first. Then you do this. Then you do this. And yeah, you get lifetime access. So when you're in Factory 45, you're in it for life. And we also offer a $1,000 launch incentive So when you do launch your brand, Factory 45 is the first investor to invest $1,000 back into your brand. Oh, that's awesome. Ooh, that's great. It is such a great program. We didn't do the full Factory 45. We kind of came in at the crowdfunding part, which is amazing. But I know from working with you that it's amazing and the people that have gone through it. So if anyone out there listening is thinking about starting a sustainable fashion brand, you would be crazy not to work with Factory 45. I can't imagine just the amount of like headaches that you save and I mean, even more time, dramatic, money, yeah, time, money, <laughs> people totally quitting because they don't know. And if anyone is interested, um, you can book a call with Hannah, who is our director of enrollment, just to learn more about the program, whether it's a good fit and if our goals align. And you can do that at factory45.co slash apply. Very good. So thank you so much for this really fun and interesting discussion this afternoon. And it's so good to talk to you again and to see you again. We'll have to stay in touch. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.